Hello and welcome to Switzerland Investing with me, Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on tonight's show, we'll work out why stocks were down today and what sectors are in and which sectors are on the outer. We'll also ask, is it time to take a risk on Asian stocks? How could you actually do that if that was your um, inclination? I'll ask Julia Lee of Burn Investor Past Judgment on OrthoCell Limited, that's OCC. Also, Magellan, as well as Fortescue, two companies that have been beaten up lately, and she'll give us her favourite stock right now. And then I'll ask Adam Dawes of Shore and Partners to run his eye over the same stocks and give us his favourite stock that he likes right now as well. And then Paul Ricard will tell us if it's is it time to actually switch banks away from the CBA, which has been one of the most successful uh, investment suggestions we've put forward over the last year or so. And if so, which bank do you go to? And then we'll wind up the show with a quick look at interest rates with Yin Yi and Chang from Cooler Bar Capital. That's the show. Let's kick off with Julia Lee. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Great to be here, Pete. Before we start talking stocks, let's talk a couple of things. At the moment, you know, the market's been a little bit negative on some areas, but positive on others. Do you see a sector rotation going on? Is that affecting the way you're investing in the fund? Well, I think one of the things that we have been seeing is that longer term interest rates have been going up. So that has been impacting on how people are investing. What we have seen are some of the high growth areas that focus on future cash flow, like the tech space have come under pressure. And instead we have seen a rotation into the quality as well as the cyclical end of the market. Um, so at the moment in our portfolio, we hold no tech stocks uh, given the run up in interest rates. And because we're likely at the start of that journey at the moment, so just waiting for, I guess, our central banks around the world and their decisions. And this week we'll be very focused in on the Bank of Korea around our region. But of course, last week we saw the Bank of New Zealand raising interest rates from a quarter of a percent to half a percent. So watching to see whether that is a trend, especially given the fears around stagflation or slowing growth. Yeah, the interesting thing about tech stocks is that no tech stocks are the same. So are you including buy now, pay later stocks in the tech um, space? Yeah, uh, the buy now, pay later space would be in that tech space as well. So um, that they have been impacted by um, the tech space over in the US and the NASDAQ pulling back um, and those rising yields as well. Remember, the buy now, pay later space isn't really that profitable. It's relying on those future cash flows for that valuation. So that sector has been hit as well, um, given the rising yields on the market. But on the flip side, you know, rising yields, great news for the banking space, the insurance space and investment portfolio there. So there are a number of sectors that do well off the back of that rising interest rate environment. Yeah, I'm just curious with like a company like Tyro, it's financial, but it's also tech. Uh, do, do you think that's also reopening, which is one of the themes that you've been talking about as well. And it actually has been doing well lately. And I, th- I figure it's the reopening part. It's an interesting series of forces affecting a company like that. Yes, well, we hold Tyro in our portfolio, so I understand exactly what you're saying, Pete. Um, And it has seen a bit of a pullback on the back of uh, the sentiment in terms of tech stocks coming back. But you're right, uh, Tyro has seen not only strong growth year on year, 
but the growth is likely ahead of it in the short term because of that reopening trade. So I think from a short term as well as a medium and long term basis that it will do well. And I guess um, when we're looking at tech stocks, they're at different parts of their journey as well. And really, if we have a look at some of the more well established giants, that's where um, some of that pullback has been felt. But of course, with that reopening trade, you'd expect tech stocks that are exposed to things like travel, hospitality, reopening to still do well, um, despite that tech element being in there. Yeah. Now, does your fund invest in Asia if you feel there's a good value there? If Does my fund invest, you invest in, in Asia? Say, for example, Alibaba. If, for example, if you thought there was value there, would your fund invest in there? Because I noticed on the weekend, Charlie Munger, the advisor to, or the buddy of uh, Warren Buffett, increased his bet on Alibaba. And, and I'm just wondering whether, you know, you actually would invest OS if you thought the opportunity was there. Pete, our investment universe is the ASX 200. So that's our mandate and we can't go outside of that. But I guess one way you could get exposure to something like Alibaba is through Magellan Financial Group. Exactly. Um, their global fund, the number one holding is actually Alibaba. Um, I noticed just having a look at their August report that they've exited out of Tencent. But of course, you know, there are other risks in the there as well. They have been underperforming of late. So really they want to see that performance turning around. But I guess that performance is really based upon what stocks they hold in their portfolio. And if you have a look at their key flagship fund, the number one holding there is Alibaba, but they also hold stocks like Microsoft as well as Facebook. So a strong tech bent to it. So if you were going to buy into something like Magellan, you'd want to be pretty sure that uh, the tech sentiment was going to turn around pretty soon. Yeah, I guess uh, Hamish would prefer to have more Starbucks than, than Tencent or Alibaba at this point in time because people keep on drinking coffee no matter what. So, all right, so therefore your view on Magellan is at this point in time, what? Yeah, look, Magellan has seen uh, some big fund outflows based on performance. And if you have a look at their flagship fund over the one, three or five year period, there has been underperformance and that's leading to fund outflows. Um, the question is, when does that sort of start to stop? And the answer to that will be once performance turns around. But until that happens, you know, the flagship fund has a management expense ratio of 1.35%, which is relatively high for the industry, especially when you're comparing it to lower cost options like exchange traded funds. I guess for a more active fund, 0.8% to 1% is still the norm in the industry, but that's still much lower than 1.35%. So I think the risk here is for a fund manager like Magellan, which makes its money from not only management expense ratios and management fees, but also performance fees. The prospect of performance fees is out of the picture for the moment. And in terms of management fees, well, there's probably pressure to drop that given the underperformance for a relatively long period of time there. So look, if you, you are looking at Magellan, you were making a bet that they were going to turn around that underperformance. So I think if you have a look at a short term view, the risks are relatively high, um, that they'll probably have to drop their, um, their management fees. So revenue would be impacted. But if you're looking for the medium to long term, then perhaps um, a better chance there. So I think it depends on your timeframe and how much risk you're willing to take. For me, I'd probably wait till some of that performance started to come through. Okay, let's go to Fortescue now. Um, has been has been clobbered. I, I believe it had a pretty good day today. Is it in the buy territory now? 
Yeah, look, Peter, I really like Fortescue. I think it's at the forefront of um, what's happening in terms of environmental social governance aspects in that the green energy push is very strong. And today there was an announcement about a green energy hub over in Queensland and Fortescue shares were up around about 5% compared to BHP and Rio Tinto, which were up around about 1%. But not only that, they're doing uh, trials of things like uh, driverless trucks as well as um, using green energy in the areas of things like uh, cargo and you're looking at the trains as well so there's lots of innovative things going on there the main problem for Fortescue at the moment in the short term though is the price of iron ore which has very rapidly dropped from 220 US a ton down to around about just over 120 US a ton so I guess the big question is when does that start to turn around we know that steel manufacturing capacity has been cut in China some of the reasons because of of, um, pollution, but also because of the blackouts as well. And I suspect that iron ore prices will remain relatively stock soft until at least the winter Beijing Olympics, which is in February, where I think China would want to show uh, blue skies rather than grey skies. So look, I think in the short term, you can start to accumulate here, but just realising that the iron ore price will probably still be likely to come under pressure over the next quarter um, before we see more stimulatory uh, policies coming through uh, from China because of a slowing down in terms of growth. So we'll probably see a lot more infrastructure spend, I think, coming from China next year. Um, but I think we still have probably a quarter of softer growth for Fortescue and the iron ore miners there. Okay, quick one, orthocell. You get a chance to have a look at that and what do you think? Yeah, definitely very specky. I had a look at it um, and it's got two key products there. The main product it has is cell grow is all about uh, 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 tissue uh, to help revitalize tissue and heal tissue. Um, and look, this one's specky because there's not a lot of liquidity in terms of the stock. If you have a look at the top shareholders, they're mostly individuals and they're usually connected to the board. So there's not a lot of institutional interest. And look, the turnover there for this stock just today was only $50,000 worth of shares. So it's very difficult to get into and out of there. So you wanna be pretty uh, confident around the technology it has around tissue regeneration. And it's probably too early stage for me, Pete, uh, to look at this one. Okay, one final one. Your favourite stock of the week? <laughs> I've got lots of favourites at the moment. Like I mentioned, I love structural trends and I think that rising interest rate trend is really at the start and infancy and that means I think structurally the insurers are going to do well. So I like both QBE Insurance and Insurance Australia Group here. QBE has... Um, um, a much more higher exposure to government bonds through its investment portfolio than Insurance Australia Group, but Insurance Australia Group has a lot more provisioning that could be unlocked here, um, which might give its share price a bit more upside in the short term. Also like the agricultural stocks here, uh, given that we are seeing inflation coming through, but still pretty good growing conditions. So I like Intertech Privet, New Farm, um, and look, Orica looks like it's turned a corner here. So looking quite interesting for Orica as well. So lots of stock ideas. And look, I think the end of October will actually be good for the market. We've seen a pretty good correction here, but uh, I think we'll start to see a strong end to the to the year. And the key this week is to look out for US earnings because we do get quarterly earnings reports starting to trickle through. Yeah. So Orica is your dynamite tip, mate. <laughs> I love it, Pete. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Pete.
Joining me now is Adam Dawes of Shuron Partners. Adam, good to see you. Yes, also great to be here, Peter, also. Thank you. So just look at the market today, mate. A um, bit negative. Was there a, a good reason for the market being down? Not, not really. I think this one was, it was very much uh, along the lines of we had a really good Friday. So potentially just a little bit of a pullback. I think our market's going to trade sideways until we get into AGM season, which is coming up sort of closer to the end of uh, this month and in maybe through into November. So we get some more catalysts for the market. But yeah, I think just a little bit of uh, profit taking potentially after a good Friday. I'm not sure if in the past you've liked Tyro, but it certainly seems to be doing well at the moment. Even on days in the market stands, kind of sneaking up. Yeah, it is certainly. I've, yeah, I've liked this story for a long time now. I think this one uh, is that middleman or that conduit between the machine and the bank. And I, I think these guys have certainly with a cashless society that is continuing to happen now. I think I've had $20 in my wallet now for the last sort of three months and never had to spend it. So my wife said to me the other day, have you got some money? And I actually had some money in my wallet. So yeah, I, I think increasing more and more people will be coming with those cashless payments. And I think Tyro is well positioned for that. Yeah, and I, look, I've got to say, I've said before that, you know, I'm invested in Tyro. But what's also interesting, mate, is that it's a part of the reopening trade, isn't it? And like, when we all get back to the pubs, the cafes, which in Sydney is happening tonight. Um, yeah. today, um, you, you kind of think over the next six months, there should, there should be some good results coming out of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I think, you know, it doesn't really matter uh, the, the, the amount. It's the frequency that these guys uh, uh, allow that for those taps to go through. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. My credit card for last month didn't have many expenses on it at all. So this month I'm going to get definitely give it a working out now that we're supposedly free to get out and move about. Yeah, your credit card really needs it, mate. So make sure you do it. <laughs> Very true. Very yeah, true. Let's just go. I've asked you about a couple of stocks. I'm going to ask you about your favourite stock as well. The first one, well, let's start with the, the, the well-known ones first. And one is um, Magellan. Uh, has really copped it recently. And one of the reasons why I wanted to see what your view is that I, I noticed on the weekend that, um, you know, Charlie Munger, that's Warren Buffett's uh, seller kick, made a pretty big bet on Alibaba. Um, and, and, and of course, they're famous, both Buffett and Munger, for being greedy when other people are fearful. Yeah, and yeah. they thought to themselves, well, you know, playing Magellan might be a way because we know Hamish Douglas was a big fan of some of the big companies in China. What's your view on Magellan going forward? My view on Magellan is that it's a very, very, very good business. My second view is, is that I think overall Magellan at the moment, it looks like you're potentially catching a falling knife. And that's a, a, a comment or a, or a saying that we use in the, in the market here, that basically you don't want to be getting stuff or you don't want to be buying things while it's continuing to go down and you get yourself hurt. And I think that's the case with Magellan. It just seems to be from $60 a year ago to where it is today, $30, $35, it really does seem like it's still all under a lot of pressure. On the flip side to that though, if markets do are weak or start to fall away, Magellan will do very, very well because they're the ones that have been in the most amount of cash for a long time. They've been well, well positioned in the market to say that they've got a lot of cash and they potentially have moved or have missed this last upward tick. So yeah, I think certainly Magellan looks very, very good. 
I'd like to see that stock sort of level out a bit a little bit. So in other words, move sideways instead of continuing to go down. I'd also like to, for them to come out and give us some real clarification on how that Baron Joey acquisition is going, uh, how these other acquisitions that they're going. But certainly uh, we have to try and stop the outflows. And I think that's the first key to serve the, I guess, looking at this stock is, is looking at those outflows starting to shrink. And then from there, making the stock up moving sideways for then it to tick up higher. But certainly got some very, very good stocks and very good investments inside of their portfolio. Yeah. And I guess the, the thing is that it, it was advantaged by the fact that a lot of financial advisors were putting their clients into it. And after you have a bad run, advisors can actually take a set against you until you prove that you're actually doing well again. So it may well take some time. But I'm going to get Mike Gable on next week to have a look at the charts to see if he's seeing consolidation around these mm -hmm. levels. As you, as you make the point, it seems like a really low position to be, but if it's still going down, the old falling knife analogy still applies. Yeah. Another one, mate, that's gone for a, a, a fall, but when it turns around, it tends to rebound pretty hard is Fortescue. Yeah. My general view is... I'm thinking 2022 is going to be a, a good year for the world economy. And these iron ore prices, you know, pr probably will turn around, not go back to where they were, but I, I, I'm kind of thinking that maybe Fortescue may well be in buying territory. But what do you, what do you think? Well, definitely Fortescue is having a great day today. And it looks like it has had a bit of a reversal in the charts as well. So maybe get Michael to have a chat or have a look at that one as well, because those moving averages have now started to move in the right direction. So there's a bit of a cross happening at the moment. But look, I think uh, Fortescue is a very, very good company. We like this one from $1.35 all the way up to $25. Look, certainly it has been hit. Iron ore prices now started to stabilise at $100, $110. That has stabilised and that will definitely help the share price to move higher. Remember Fortescue, and BHP and Rio can produce a ton of iron ore for $15, okay? That includes dividends. Now, if the iron ore price is around $80, which is where the government thinks it should be, most analysts think it should be $50 to $80, even at $100, this thing will do well going forward. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to remember is that at $100, a lot of those marginal producers that are out there in Indonesia, Africa, and around the world can't produce a ton of iron ore for cheaper than $100. So when the iron ore price gets down to those levels, you, you will see these marginal producers start to shut up shop because they can't do it. And certainly our Fortescue can certainly do that for $15, $16 a ton, and it's still looking very, very well. With 188 million tonnes a year, that's still a lot of zeros in the back of Twiggy's pocket to uh, do what he wants to do with his dividends. And I kind of like the fact that he's actually looking to diversify the business as well. You know, we kept reading about his desire to get into the hydrogen play. It's kind of like a sensible thing to do with a company that is in the Very fossil fuel so. business, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and look, he, he is talking about a lot of green investments and he's done mm -hmm. a lot of ag investments and he's done a lot for Indigenous people as well. So, look, you know, he, he can't spend the billions of dollars that he gets every year. I think he's doing the right thing by looking at that. I know that he put a little bit of a blocking stake in Western areas, WSA, just the other day because IGO, Independence Group, is actually looking at taking over Western areas. But when one of his companies, he put a bit of a blocking stake. So he doesn't mind playing around in that smaller space to get the profitability for his own business. Okay. This is an interesting one. Orthocell. Did you get a chance to have a look at it? And what do you think? I did. <laughs> I've been looking at it all day, trying to work out what the hell they do. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. So look, Orthocell is an interesting guy. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's an interesting business because 
basically, uh, any joint, hip joint, chin, elbow, uh, those kinds of things, old traditional methods of, of, of fixing is putting a plate on there, putting a couple of screws in there, and then coming back for, you know, getting that plate and screws removed. Whereas OrthoCell's got this fantastic technology, they basically put a Band-Aid, which is a mesh Band-Aid, onto the joint, and it allows the fibres of the muscles to continue to grow over the top of that in a natural form. And there's no more evasive surgery after they're basically fixed a tendon. So look, it's an interesting business and it does have some really good technology, especially with elective surgeries. Now, elective surgeries, and you would potentially think if you need to get your knee done or your hip done or your elbow done, that's elective. It's not life-saving. So those elective surgeries would have pulled back. And we know that Ramsey Healthcare, we know a lot of the other uh, businesses have said that uh, elective surgery has because of COVID. So I think now things are starting to open up again. OrthoCell will do well. They didn't put an investor presentation out in 2021. They put one out in 19 and in 2020, but didn't put out one in September in 2021, which led me to believe that potentially they're not... They're not telling us everything that's happening in the in the company at the moment. Last year, they put out a presentation talking about FDA approvals in the fourth quarter of 2020. I couldn't see anything like that going through. The stock has been moving sideways a little bit. Look, I think the technology is great. I think that the business is good. Management look good as well. But really, you just need to get that TGA FDA approval for one. But then two, you need to be able to sell that to the doctors. You need to be going out there into the hospitals and need to be able to do that. And for that, you need to spend a lot of money to get your businesses up and running and you get that sales team out of the US and those kinds of things. So with the cash that they've got at the moment, they're cash flow positive. They might need to raise some more capital to get that next phase going. So it's an interesting one. I think the technology is great. I think that it is there. But for me, I'd probably hold off one, till I could see some real, uh, I guess, approvals from, you know, the, the FDA or the TGA. And I might be wrong. It might have been in there, but I couldn't see it. As well as then the amount of cash that they're going to need. They're probably going to need to raise some money. And it looks like they're going to need to do that sooner than later. So I think that's why the market is a little bit skittish at the moment on it. It'll be a hold from me at best until you get some positive news. And then I'd be happy to invest in the stock. Okay. One last one before you go. Your favourite stock, Pete. Adam Dawes, I love this stock this week uh, session. All right. I had to scratch my head on this one because there's, look, there's a lot of good stocks out there. I'm going to go with a smaller one that I potentially might have talked about uh, previously, but I'm, I'm really quite comfortable with it. It's Aussie Broadband. ABB is the stock code. And Aussie Broadband, you would have seen their TV advertising that's going on at the moment. They're doing a fair bit in that space. But they just completed a... Share purchase plan at $4. The, currently, the stock's at $4.80. It held up really, really well in that share purchase plan and that institutional raise. They've got $120 million sitting on their balance sheet at the moment. They are going to make some more acquisitions, which will be EPS creditive, earnings per share creditive, accretive, sorry, as well as then uh, we expect them to announce some other deals with the NBN and some fibre stuff as well. But it is ABB is the fastest growing telco in Australia at the moment. And the reason why it's the fastest is obviously it's taking a lot of market share from Telstra. Telstra is so big, so cumbersome, it can't be nimble. Aussie Broadband is very, very nimble. I really like the stock. We've got a $4.50, $4.60 price target on it. Uh, Sorry, $5.50 price target on it. It's currently $4.80. I think there's a little bit of room to move on the upside on that one. And Doris, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Have a great day.
Well, recently my colleague Paul Ricco wrote a story about the CVA buyback and recommended it for various people, but not for everybody. Now, if you have actually engaged in the buyback or you're just a new investor, Paul has a bit of a, a view that maybe it's time to switch from the CVA to other banks. But the big question is, which bank? Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Let's just deal with anyone normally before we go on the buyback issue, because there are lots of people out there who are wondering, you know, should they buy CBA now um, after the buyback? What's your general view? Well, I should point out, Peter, I'm a huge CBA fan, as I know that you are. Uh, so it's rarely I put out a, a sell on CBA, but I just think it's so expensive compared to the other major banks that there's a lot better value to be had. Now, the way I look at value, Peter, is looking at um, at the times, the model of, of times earnings. This is what the analysts come up with in terms of, uh, you know, forecast uh, price earnings models. CBA is trading on a model of about 20 times, and the other banks are between sort of 13 and 15. The CBA has always been at a premium, Peter, because it's the best bank, but uh, that premium at the moment is out to about 40%. And since I've been monitoring, Peter, that's a record. So... Um, I think that's sort of reason number two. And reason number reason number one, I should say, the second reason, of course, is we know that the price uh, has been pushed up because of the buyback, because what happens with a buyback, CBA has cancelled shares, but many of the people who sell the shares into the buyback then look to replace those same shares on market and actually buy the CBA shares back on market again. That pushes the price up. And I think we're coming towards the end of that. So... Uh, I think that over the next uh, 12 months, when I unwind straight away, that premium will come back down again. So uh, I think there's better value to be had in the other major banks. Now, I think we should explain, Paul, uh, that the people who uh, participated in the buyback were people who were in favourable tax positions. And so they made money by selling it because of tax and, and franking credits, but then they had good reason to buy in again just to be a normal participant and holder of CBA shares. I mean, that's a really good point, Peter. It is largely a tax transaction, participation in off-market buyback. And you're really selling because of, uh, at least if you're a zero rate or very low rate taxpayer, you get this huge franc dividend and all the franking credits. And effectively, they, they, they act, come back as a, as, a, uh, as a cash refund. So a lot of people who participate in the buyback are just there to actually pick up the, the franking credits not because they necessarily want to sell CBA shares. So they end up with the cash. And the question is, well, what do you do with it? And uh, I still think there's a bit of value in banks. So the question is, do you put it back into CBA or do you go into one of the other major banks? And that's my point about the buyback. It's one of the reasons why the price has also been held up really high because there have been people out in the market who've taken part in the buyback and then the same shares they sell them in the buyback. I know this is confusing, but then buy them back on market again. So uh, it is a bit of a merry-go-round sometimes. Yes, and there's sort of two forces then that's kept the price up. One is that there's less shares on the market. And secondly, these people who sold have bought back in again. But you're saying over time, and look, CBA still could rise, but your argument is that the other banks will probably rise at a faster rate so there's more potential money to be made with the other banks. Yeah, and, that, and that's uh, really on the basis of two things. First of all, Peter, um, there isn't really that much difference in terms of the major banks in terms of strategy. So they're all largely doing the same thing, right? There's not as though there's one out, an outlier out there of the four banks, and that includes CBA. And secondly, you know, CBA gets the vote as the best bank because it's got, you know, really the best management team, it's got the best execution record, the best market shares, 
and also the strongest balance sheet. Now, there's a, there's a price for that, and that why that's why it trades at a premium to the other the three other major banks. The question is, is that premium too much? And I'm just arguing on the basis of what we've seen that premium at over the last sort of 10 years, that this is about as big as it's been. And I think it's time to look elsewhere because I won't say they're catching up, Peter, but they're not necessarily falling any further behind, if that makes sense. And um, I think they're pretty acutely aware of the of the what they need to do to lift their own game in terms of technology uh, and in terms of organisation and execution. Yeah. Okay. So you've got three choices. Uh, I know you're not necessarily a great fan of the regional banks. So your argument is to go into the other uh, big four banks. Which one do you prefer and why? Look, I prefer the National Australia Bank for, for two reasons. One is I think it's, uh, it's, it's halfway through a transformation program under CEO Ross McEwen. He's been there a couple of years now. And I think that's going to take him a little while, but I think that we're starting to see a few signs that the, the bank is simplifying and uh, casting off some of its... Uh, you know, the, the legacy issues of the past. So I think we're going to see more out of the National Australia Bank going forward. And secondly, uh, on the basis, Peter, that um, I, as we go into the recovery, uh, National Australia Bank's probably core strength is business. It is overweight, the, the, the business community, uh, and has probably the leading bank in terms of business customers. And so if we get a really strong recovery, which I think you and I think there's going to be as lockdowns end, National Australia Bank is likely to benefit the most. So they're the sort of they're the two reasons in favour of National Australia Bank. The bank I like second is Westpac, Peter, but um, I guess the major reason for thinking about Westpac is that we might see uh, a buyback announcement from it when it reports on the 1st of November. It's the only major bank so far that hasn't done any capital action, but I don't think Westpac's at, at the same level in terms of its transformation that National Australia Bank is. So I'm going for NAB number first, Westpac second. Yeah. Um, if someone is a holder of ANZ shares, would you recommend they sell or just you wouldn't add? Look, um, there is. there does tend to be this rotation between the four banks. You know, as I said, they are, have got pretty identical strategies um, and market share gains are hard to win. And, um, you know, some argue they're all as bad as each other, but I just think one's better. Um, I don't think there's that much difference between National Australia Bank, Westpac and the ANZ. Um, and so they're all too significant a company for me not to have some of each. But I can imagine some people saying, yeah, look, selling ANZ and buying National Australia Bank, they're probably hitting some sense in that strategy as well. So I think you can take that a step further. It's just a question of relative value. And at the moment, I think there's just better value in the National Australia Bank. Okay. Just before you go, you, you, you probably read my story today in Switzer Report, and, and I, I wrote it up as probably the most risky um, story I've ever written. And as you know, Paul, I don't like writing risky stories. Um, and I made the point that Charlie Munger, who is in a sense the advisor or the mentor to Warren Buffett, recently went long Alibaba at a time when people like you and me have been very suspicious about what Beijing's doing to their major companies and their share prices have been really badly affected. But Munger's basically done a very big bet um, supporting Alibaba. And I noticed today in Hong Kong, I think Alibaba's up 7% today. Yep. Um, a lot of the tech stocks out of Hong Kong done really well. What do you reckon, Paul? Do you think, you know, maybe this, this smashing of some of the, the star tech companies in China by the Beijing leadership does actually create a buying opportunity for the long-term investor? 
Well, I think if there's any investor that you wanted to perhaps follow, Charlie Munger's probably you know, number one or number two. Maybe he's ahead of Buffett, I don't know. Um, look, it, it makes me interested, Peter. I mean, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't probably appreciated how far they'd fallen um, this year. I mean, I knew there'd been a bit of pressure, but um, until I sort of looked at the chart you had today, I hadn't realised that uh, Alibaba was down 44% until the early part of last week. And that's, uh, that, that's a big bashing by, you know, as you say, the Beijing bully boys. Um, I don't think they want to see, uh, you know, the market out of control. That's not in their interest. They're really interested in stability and stable economic growth. So I think it's a gutsy call. I'm always a bit wary about investing in China, Peter, as you are. Uh, and I thought it was a courageous piece of uh, research from you. So, look, I'm tempted. Um, I'm not quite sure I'm there, but I'm tempted. Yeah. So my point of view is that you might want to have a small dipping of the toe in, but there are a couple of ways you can do it, Paul, isn't it? Like one is there is this ETF called Asia from Beta mm -hmm. And that gives you not only Chinese stocks, but also other stocks. Yeah, that's from beta shares. And that includes companies like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is, I think, the biggest holding. Yeah. yeah. And so there's other ways you can actually play a little more diversified exposure. So Asia, which is actually, that's the uh, ticket code as well from beta shares is, is a good way to do it. Um, and there's a couple of others in the same uh, that you discussed in the report today, Peter. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's, it's an interesting one. I'm not recommending it. But certainly for the thrill seeker, it could be a surprise package over a couple of years. Because eventually you kind of think Beijing has to let these companies do well. Otherwise, I think, and by the way, there must be a lot of very influential Chinese people who've invested in these stocks who'd be really cheesed off at President Xi and this crackdown on the big tech companies. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, I'll leave that to the experts to comment on just what impact that has. But you're right, I mean, um, a lot of hot money went into Asia, Asian tech. Um, we've seen a big sell-off. Is this sort of, you know, just the correction or is this actually a real buying opportunity? So I think, you know, you can see Charlie putting his own money in there, Peter, and uh, you have to say that's a pretty good bull sign to follow if you're, a, you know, that sort of person. So uh, for me, not they're quite there yet, but certainly a watch point for me. Okay, so that's all in the Switzer Report. People can get a, a free trial of the Switzer Report by going to switchreport.com.au. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Well, joining us now is Yingyi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital. Yingyi, good to see you. Good to see you, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Right. Now, you know, you are the, the, the lady we go to when we tr try to understand the bond market, the implications for interest rates, because... That's the only reason we're interested in the bond market. Interest <laughs> rates affect our loans, it affects our business, it affects our savings. So we're interested. China and the Evergrande uh, property company has blown up. Is there an implication in, the, in that story for interest rates? Yeah, I mean, sort of a good question. I mean, if we sort of go back to the, the whole sort of uh, what it means, uh, Evergrande, look, I think just given the, the news flow that came out over the course of recent sort of weeks, it looks like the equity markets and broader markets have sort of shrugged off Evergrande. I think people have sort of come to the realisation that it will still be very much sort of contained to, to China with most of the investors being, you know, Asian sort of uh, high yield 
investors. Um, obviously, there are you know global funds that invest in Evergrande, um, but you know in terms of the majority, uh, it isn't. And so you know what people sort of thought is this the the Lehman sort of moment for China? Um, you know, thus far hasn't really sort of necessarily played out um, because you know it still feels very much contained. Um, and you know, with the Evergrande sort of issues, they were already um, they already had issues you know since last year, since previous years as well. So that sort of unraveling, um, you could say was a bit sort of inevitable. Obviously, I'm not a, an Asian high yield specialist. So I, I can't really sort of foresee, um, you know, other central banks, whether it's the US Federal Reserve or the Reserve Bank of Australia, really, you know, looking at that and saying, hey, that's going to affect our economy as such. Um, and, you know, as a result, we don't sort of think that there'll be any sort of easing um, that takes place in response to that. Yeah. And, and the bottom line is, if, if you thought this was going to be a big uh, international financial system problem, given the nature of Coolabar, uh, you would be right onto it because it, it has implications on yields and the bonds you're invested in. So, okay. If you're comfortable, we're comfortable. Let's go to the question. Do you believe interest rates are on hold to 2024 here in Australia? I know I ask this question all the time, but one day you're going to change. You're going to say, hey, you've changed your view on this. Yeah, look, uh, our view has been that the RBA could uh, raise rates late 2023 to early sort of 2024. And, you know, in terms of what the RBA, um, you know, in terms of their rhetoric has been sort of signaling, you know, more like 2024. That's because we find ourselves in a very sort of different situation to um, offshore central banks. Um, look, definitely, you know, with uh, the, the sort of hawkish overtones from overseas, uh, there is the risk that, you know, the RBA could hike sooner. However, the RBA is facing very, a uh, very different sort of a situation to other global central banks. We're starting to see, you know, signs of inflation definitely in, uh, in, in the US. Uh, we're seeing signs of inflation in parts of Europe, you know, definitely even just our, uh, you know, our neighbours, New Zealand, for example. Uh, the problem with the RBA is that even before the pandemic, we were, you know, undershooting our inflation and employment objectives. And so then we got hit with the pandemic. So as a as a starting sort of a starting sort of a base as such, the RBA feels like it is behind and therefore they're going to be much more stimulatory, if anything, compared to, you know, say, you know, the RBNZ, for example, who is likely to hike rates soon as a result. Okay. Let's move to the next related issue. If the US finds it's growing, say by the middle of next year or even earlier, that stronger than what was expected, uh, there is a, a, a feeling, well, I believe that could raise interest rates uh, at least by the middle of 2022. Correct me if you, if you totally disagree. But if they did, would that put pressure on us eventually to, to follow? Yeah, good question, Peter. And look, it's not inconceivable that they could, uh, you know, hike rates in the US uh, as early as mid next year. Uh, obviously, you know, they've signaled that they are likely to start tapering at the end of this year. Uh, and just from, you know, the, the Fed speak, it, it does seem that they want to get this tapering done 
you know, in a fairly quick fashion as well. And typically tapering is a, a separate thing to interest rate hikes. However, it, you know, this could follow quite soon. In terms of, you know, the RBA flow following the US in lockstep, that has traditionally been the case. However, there is a possibility that, you know, monetary policy does deviate um, and we have seen that since. So it wouldn't be unsurprising to me that the RBA sticks to its own sort of, again, its own objectives in terms of what's happening on the ground here uh, with respect to inflation and employment. But, you know, obviously that's not to say uh, when we open up the economy again, uh, as in when we come out of lockdown and we have, you know, spurts of economic activity, there's nothing to say that, you know, the risk there is that those rate hikes get brought forward and that tapering also gets brought forward as well. But that's my final question, you know, Yin Yi, is that if, if Australia's economy does really rocket along faster than what the RBA thinks and we're starting to see you know, the inflation goals come along faster than what the RBA thinks, would that then uh, put pressure on them to change their outlook on, on interest rates and when they run? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a complicated issue for the RBA because on the one hand, they're watching wage inflation. So as the, this key sort of barometer, they're watching wage inflation quite carefully. The issue is, is that they would want to see very consistent um, ongoing inflation uh, in order for them to sort of move towards that, you know, rate hiking or that tightening sort of a schedule. And we've spoken about this before, uh, and that's the key thing around, you know, non-resident workers. So as, um, you know, we got hit with the pandemic and non-resident workers moved back to their home countries and they left Australia, their jobs needed to be filled, uh, and these jobs were filled by Australians. That had the effect of, you know, increasing employment and putting downward pressure on our unemployment rate. Now, the, the, the key sort of, you know, consideration then would be, well, when we do eventually open up our borders, which is slated to be next year, for example, uh, then that would have the opposite effect as these non-resident workers come back to Australia. So if anything, that would put take away pressure from wage inflation. It would be slightly deflationary, if anything. So, you know, perhaps, again, that inflation sort of problem is not something that we face until, you know, a couple of years down the track for Australia. Okay, so the, the headline of your answer is foreign workers keep interest rates low. Love foreign workers. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, obviously we don't want to sound xenophobic at all. Um, but yeah, look, look, there is, it's just the way that the, the jobs data is classified here. So jobs held by non-resident workers are not included in the employment numbers here. Oh, okay, great. All right, Ying Yi, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter. And that was Ying Yi and Chang from Cooler Bar Capital. So that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can always uh, get a, a free trial of the Switch Report. Go to switchreport.com.au. If you want to read me every day, just go to Switzer Daily. That's switzer.com.au. Thanks for joining me. See you on Thursday night.